Our affirmation of faith this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and most scholars believe that there Paul has put a confession, a creed that the very early church would say when they gathered for worship, and it resonates with a lot of the themes of Christ's ascension, and so I thought it would be appropriate for us this morning, and then we will sing a song having to do with the ascension of Christ, Christ whose glory fills the skies. But if you're able, please stand, let us affirm our faith together. This morning, I'll read the pastor's line. We can respond with one voice. Regarding Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Let us join together in response, singing all three verses of number 448, Christ whose glory fills the skies. chapter 7. Page 1602, if you're using the View Bible in front of you. This is God's word given to us from him for our good. Please give your attention to its reading. Luke 7, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. 
the centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. C.S. Lewis said once that faith is the art of holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. That's what faith is, holding on to things that your reason has once accepted in spite of your changing moods. Today's story in this passage, we have seen a person who is in the middle of a sad situation, a low point. A member of his household whom he loves is sick, and he is looking for help. In times like this, these low points of life, the philosophical arguments for God's existence seem to fade into the background, don't they? And all of those things, the, the, the evidentiary arguments for Jesus' life and resurrection, while all of those things are good, that's not what's really at the forefront of our minds. The question becomes whether or not we will hold on to our Savior, whether or not we will be able to look at our circumstances and still look at Jesus and see him as ruling and reigning on the throne. This account in Luke is a beautiful picture, and it's given, really, brothers and sisters, to encourage us and to teach us about a proper faith for the members of Christ's kingdom. It's interesting that Luke puts this story here just on the heels of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. It's almost as if he's saying, here, let me give you an example of someone who hears Jesus' words and puts them into action. Thus, we learn about really three things. The first thing that we learn about, and we will certainly spend the most time on this first one, is the nature of faith. We're not going to look at everything that has to do with faith, but we're going to look at particularly the humility of faith. The humility of faith. So the first thing is the nature of faith, and that is humility. We see this in the Roman centurion. A clear example of what Jesus has just taught us in the Sermon on the Plain. He's abounding in worldly riches. It's another thing that makes this story so interesting. He is a rich man, abounding in worldly riches, and yet he views himself as completely bankrupt without the mercy of God. He teaches us the nature of this faith, a humble faith, keeping a right perspective of ourselves in light of God. Second, we see the object of faith. So nature of faith, humility, the object of faith. And the object of faith, of course, is the one in whom we trust. The object of faith is Jesus Christ. 
we remind ourselves that faith is not just a vague idea. It's not some sort of worldly disposition that is often celebrated. It's not something that you put on bumper stickers. People have, in today's world, faith in yourself or faith in your own happiness, or faith in love. But our faith, the Christian faith, is a trust specifically and particularly in Jesus Christ. So nature of faith, humility, object of faith, Jesus. And then finally, the growth of faith. The growth of faith. What is the water and sunlight and soil of our faith? We learn in this passage that the growth of faith comes about by the word of God. By the word of God, through the reading, preaching, teaching, and meditating on his word, that is how the faith of Christians grows. As we get into this text, a few things to note just from verse 1. In verse 1, we see that when Jesus had finished saying all of these things, he had finished saying all of these things, thus we see that Luke is connecting what has just happened in Jesus' sermon to what is happening now. He's moving to a new uh, aspect of his gospel account, and yet he wants us to keep in mind all that Jesus has said in his sermon. And I want particularly for us to think about that first thing that Jesus said. We read it today in our reading of the law. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Remembering that will have a huge bearing on whether or not we feel the full force of this story. There are all these ideas of worthiness and unworthiness being woven throughout this story, and that has to do with what Jesus has taught regarding who is poor and who is rich. So we look then first at this nature of faith. We look at it particularly as we consider what I call, as we look into this story, the worthiness of the rich. The worthiness of the rich. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army. One who had command over at least 100 soldiers. So here we have a Roman citizen and an officer in the army. And that's very interesting, isn't it? Because Jesus has just talked about the kind of love and mercy that we are supposed to show our enemies. And even though this particular officer in the Roman army is well-liked by the Jews, most people would have considered Roman citizens to, in some sense, be the enemies of God's people. Not only that, but he is an officer. He, he lives and he works to advance the kingdom of Caesar. And so here we have an example where if, it teaches us how we should take the words of Jesus in the sermon, doesn't it? He doesn't tell this officer that he needs to leave his post in the army. He affirms that he can be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ, doing exactly what he is doing. In other words, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, Jesus is not trying to overturn all of the things of this world. A fascinating look into the ways that we can apply Jesus' sermon. This centurion has a beloved servant who is sick and approaching death. So drastic action is taken. Look with me at verse 3. There's something very important to notice there at the beginning. We read, he heard of Jesus. He heard of Jesus. And that leads us to a couple of very important things to note. What we should notice is that all throughout this story, this centurion never comes face to face with Jesus. He never sees him. We see here at the beginning, he hears of Jesus. And that tells us about the nature and the quality of his faith. 
which later Jesus will commend. This centurion never sees Jesus, but he has heard of Jesus' power to heal. We're in Capernaum. There's a couple of accounts that have to do with Capernaum back in chapters 4 and 5. So, so Jesus, his reputation precedes him, and this Roman officer has heard of what Jesus can do. And so he sends elders of the Jewish synagogue to go and make an appeal to Jesus. This suggests that it is likely that we're talking about someone who, even though he was not born in the ethnic bloodlines of Israel, he was probably a God-fearer. He probably believed the Old Testament, even though he himself was not ethnically Jewish. The elders of the synagogue go on his behalf. And that suggests to us that he probably, in some sense, feels his inferior status as a Gentile. We're getting all of these clues that this man is someone of high character. The elders then go as a delegation to Jesus. They say a very few interesting things, don't they? Look with me at verse 4. They say, this man deserves to have you do this. The word there is the word for worthy. This man is worthy to have you do this. This sounds odd to us. And it should sound odd to us, especially if we've been paying attention to the Gospel of Luke. It seems as if every passage he's drawing our attention back into ourselves so that we consider ourselves as not worthy. At this point in the Gospel, Luke wants us to bristle up at these first suggestions, and that's a good thing. But the elders don't, uh, they're not devoid of evidence regarding this man, are they? This man, uh, for two reasons, say Jesus should help him. He loves the nation, and he built the synagogue in Capernaum. So this means that this man was the benefactor of the Jewish people in Capernaum. He was the one to whom they would make appeals, they would ask for favors. And the Roman world, the Greco-Roman world, was one of benefaction. You know, there wasn't a whole lot of upward mobility. And so if you needed something given to you, you would appeal to someone higher on the social or the economic ladder. And it would all be according to their benevolence, whether or not they felt gracious enough to give you what you asked for. And this man had done just that. He had become the benefactor for the Jewish people in Capernaum. Presumably, he would have paid for the synagogue with his own money. Imagine that. He foots the bill for the building projects. It's no wonder the elders are going to advocate for this man, right? This is the one who has blessed this worshiping people a lot. But it is shocking and surprising that he makes his appeal to Jesus because he is higher up on the social ladder than any of the Jews, Back then, it was thought that the Roman emperor, in some sense, had a power to heal. And certainly, at the very least, the Roman emperor would have been able to tell this man to whom to go if he wanted to have miraculous healings. But he appeals to this somewhat obscure teacher within the community of the Israelite people. It's as if he's stooping way down on the social ladder. It should surprise us and shock us that he is making his appeal to Jesus. But it shows us something. It shows us that he has rejected the worldly hierarchy in which most people think of him. He has rejected his worldly status in coming to Jesus. But what we learn about the elders is that even though this Roman centurion has rejected his worldly status, 
The Jewish elders still think of him in those terms. They think of him according to the flesh, as the Apostle Paul would say. They suggest that this man is worthy, that Jesus is obligated to help this man. Don't you realize what he's done? This is an important person. You must help him. If we were to think of this appeal as a prayer, it would sound even more odd, wouldn't it? It would go something like this. God, we ask you to heal the servant of this man. He is a good man. He deserves your love and your healing touch. All of the good things that you give to him, he already deserves. Since he has done so much good, come and visit him now. See, that's not a good prayer, is it? It's not a very good prayer at all. And so we're starting to see that something is amiss here. Of course, we all feel that that's not the way that you make an appeal to the Lord. The Jewish elders are framing things according to their own understanding, aren't they? Worldly status. These are not the words of the centurion, as we will later find out. These are, if we think about ourselves in light of all this, they're operating according to the natural inclinations of the human heart. We always want to think of ourselves before God in terms of what we deserve. If we've had a couple of good weeks according to our obedience, we feel like we can ask for a little bit more from the Lord, don't we? If things have been going well. We are more confident if we have been on our best behavior. Some of these signs are good things in order to evaluate ourselves. But if our own obedience, if our own righteousness becomes the check that we cash in the bank of righteousness, we have missed the point. The only thing that ever can fill our account is the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we cannot think of ourselves before God and the way that we relate to God in terms of our own righteousness and particularly not our own worldly status, right? But the Jewish elders are thinking of this man in that way. John Calvin, perhaps you've heard of him before, said this, That man is truly humble who neither claims any personal merit in the sight of God, nor proudly despises brethren, nor aims at being thought superior to them, but reckons it enough that he is one of the members of Christ and desires nothing more than that Christ alone should be exalted. That is humility. The Jewish elders are thinking of this man in terms of his worldly status. He is worthy because he is rich. Beware the mentality that creeps into your minds and your heart and the minds and hearts of others that would ever say, I deserve this. That is a a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are and who God is. The worthiness of the rich contrasted with the unworthiness of the poor. The beautiful part of this story, brothers and sisters, is that this Roman officer does not think of himself the way that the Jewish elders thought of him. He's presented to Jesus as a worthy rich man, isn't he? He deserves your help. He is good. He has helped us and he is rich. But when his own words are relayed to Jesus, his friends come and speak on his behalf. He shows us that he views himself, even though he is a, in the words of the Jewish elders, a worthy rich man, he views himself as an unworthy poor man. In other words, he views himself correctly in light of God. His friends go and speak to Jesus. Notice again that it is as if Jesus and this man are now speaking directly, but he still never sees him. Look then at the message 
that his friends give on his behalf. First words, they say, Lord, don't trouble yourself. Some commentators think that this is just uh, the, the centurion being polite, addressing Jesus with a formal title of Lord. The Greek word is kurios. I, I don't think that is right at all. This is the exact same form for Lord that we saw Peter use in chapter 4, that we saw the leper that Jesus Christ uh, cleansed in chapter 5. This is the same way that they address Jesus. In other words, this man is calling Jesus Lord. He is confessing the lordship and the supremacy of Jesus. He's not trying to teach a fully-fledged Trinitarian doctrine of the Son, but he is confessing the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I think it's absolutely vital that he calls him Lord because he sees Jesus as supreme. Even if he is a good man, even if he has been a a good and benevolent benefactor for the Jewish people of his city, that does not make him worthy or deserving of Jesus being a good benefactor to him. See, he's thinking of himself in completely opposite terms. He is a perfect example of the poor in Jesus' Sermon on the Plain. Luke does not let our understanding hang in the air around all of these things. He does not let our confusion fester. He makes an instant application of the teaching of Jesus from this sermon. Blessed are the poor. Who are the poor? One example is this Roman centurion. Why? Because he knows that redemption from God, he knows that blessing from God, he knows that the bestowal of new creation life are things that he could not and would not ever demand from the Lord. He understands his unworthiness, and thus he sees himself as poor. The poor throughout the Old Testament and up to this point in Luke are whom? They are those who wait and understand that redemption comes from God. Isaiah chapter 40, right? Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. In other words, you can't go out into the world and find strength for yourself and gather it up. Spiritual strength, redemption, forgiveness, blessing, new creation life, all of these come from God alone. The poor are thus those who wait for redemption, who are waiting for God to visit them. Does this man have worldly riches? Does he have a lot in the bank account? Sure, But does he put his trust in them? No, not even close. I keep coming back to the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18, right? And you see these two mentalities so clearly contrasted in that story. The Pharisee praying and thanking God, thank you that you have not made me like this sinner. But the tax collector standing far off, beating his chest, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Interesting, isn't it, that This man, this Roman centurion, stands far off from Jesus. I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. There's a ritual purity that's contained in that. A a Jewish person would become unclean if they entered the house of a Gentile. But there's a heart condition as well. Not only does he not want Jesus to come under his roof, he does not want to go out to meet Jesus himself out in the open. Not only do I not deserve you to have me come, to have you come to my house, I don't deserve to come and meet you out in the open. The elders have said that this man deserves Jesus' help. 
but Jesus says that he, uh, but this man says to Jesus that he deserves nothing. He is an unworthy, poor man. Let us quickly then consider those other two things, the object and the growth of our faith. In verse 7, the Roman centurion's message comes to the meat of his appeal. He says through his friends, just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just say the word. What we need to note is that there's a remarkable recognition of the power of Jesus in this appeal. Normally at that time, all rituals of healing, both fake and legitimate, would have the healer and the sick person in the company of one another. There would be some kind of of contact between the two. But this man says, Jesus, just say the word. What's going on here is there's a parallel to the creative power of God in Genesis 1, isn't there? God speaks and life comes into existence. And if Jesus speaks, this man believes that by the power of his word, new creation life will come forth. Thus, in the analogy he uses in verse 8, he's not using his authority or putting his authority on the same plane of Jesus. It can seem that way if we read over it quickly, can it? It's almost as if he's saying, Lord, hear my cry because I have a worldly authority and yet I'm putting my trust in you. It's almost as if he's, it can seem like he's using what he is in the Roman army to prop himself up. That's not what he's saying at all. He's using his own authority to argue from the lesser to the greater. This is what he's saying. I understand authority because I have been placed over soldiers and I can dispatch them at my will. And I know that your authority is over all of creation. I know that you have authority to speak things into existence. Thus, if you speak on my servant's behalf, he will be healed. This man is saying that Jesus' word of power is unparalleled. This is why Jesus is amazed, that why he marvels at his faith. We return once more to the fact that this Roman centurion never sees Jesus. He never sees him with his eyes. And yet, hanging over this whole account is his steadfast faith in the Lord. Jesus says that in Israel, he has not even found a faith that is like this man. What does Jesus mean by that? What is Jesus saying? The kind of faith he has found in Israel is faith that demands a sign. Whenever Jesus goes somewhere, what are people saying? Prove who you are. Do something that lets us see the kind of authority that you have. But the faith in this centurion stands in contrast to all that. His faith comes before the blessing. He trusts in Jesus that he can perform this miracle. Thus his faith is present before the sign comes. When we read this passage, we must ask ourselves, do we have faith that is like the centurion? Do we have this kind of faith? Do we have faith that does not need signs and wonders, that does not demand proof from our Lord, but rather rests on the word of God in Christ that he has spoken to us that all will be well? Do we trust that word or do we demand signs? Not only that, but we must ask ourselves, is our faith properly resting in Christ and in him alone? We live in a world where faith is a prized virtue, but it is almost always misplaced, isn't it? 
Have faith in yourself, we hear. Or when people are asked, what does God mean to you? Often, rather than appealing to what they know about God or what he says in his word, they appeal to some kind of experience. Faith in experience. Sometimes people even have faith in faith. As long as you keep faith, you will be fine. You have to believe in something. Keep the faith. But we are called to place our faith in Christ, our Savior, to look not into ourselves, but to him. The example of this centurion and the commendation he receives from Jesus reminds us that it is not faith itself that saves us. It is Christ who saves us through faith. Faith is the instrument that receives all of the blessings that God gives in and through Christ, but we must be resting in Jesus, just like this centurion. Moreover, we must rest on the sufficiency of the word, just like this man does. Just say the word. Rest on the sufficiency of the word. Every week when we come together for worship, we put God's word at the center of everything that we do. Because true faith is nurtured by the word. True faith grows according to the word that is proclaimed and heard. And in God's word, we are not only taught, we are continually reminded of what we believe. The human mind and the human heart is fickle. It's forgetful. We need to constantly be reminded, what do we believe? What is it specifically? What has God said to us? The faith that we are supposed to have can be exemplified once again returning to the words of John Calvin, who said, unless the word of God enlighten men's paths, the whole of their life is enveloped in darkness and obscurity. Isn't it interesting that he likens that which we hear to being able to see? If you don't hear God's word, you won't be able to see where to go in life. He goes on, uh, their whole life is enveloped in darkness and obscurity so that they cannot do anything else than miserably wander from the right way. What allows us to see? Hearing God's word. This is the opposite of those who yearn for signs and wonders, for those who yearn for some kind of experience that legitimizes the faith claim that they have made. Sometimes God can do miraculous things, as Jesus does here in this story. He heals the servant, doesn't he? God can do Miraculous things. But Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Blessed are those who rest in the word that is preached and heard. Blessed are those whose faith is strengthened under the proclamation that Christ has died and Christ is risen and he has ascended and he is coming again. When we celebrate the ascension of Jesus, we rest in a truth that in many ways seems laughable to the world. We claim that the risen Son of God has assumed a real reign on a real throne from which he rules even now. That he is sitting there at the right hand of the Father and that his glory will never be surpassed. And that someday his reign will be made known to everyone on earth. And we will find out that all along we were playing by his rules and we were living within his plan. God's word is sufficient to create faith in that reality. Our default setting is to trust in our own righteousness. But blessed is the one who falls onto the mercy of God. The only check we cash, the bank of righteousness, is Christ's. 
Blessed is the one who falls onto the mercy of God. The world then tells us that anything worth believing must be proved with a certain kind of verified method given to us by modern science. Otherwise, it's not worth our time. Even some people who follow Jesus tell us that Jesus is not worth following unless we see the miraculous signs and wonders like what the people of Israel or perhaps the doubting Apostle Thomas demanded from our Lord. But blessed is he who has not seen and yet believed. Our faith is a humble faith. It grows on the word that is heard, not the sign that is seen, except the word which is visible in baptism and the supper. We trust not in ourselves. We trust in the work of our Savior. We do not demand a sign, for although we have not seen him, we love him. And we know that even now he reigns above all other powers as the king of the ages, the coming ruler, who is coming once more. And by faith, may we be strengthened and always made ready for that day. Amen. So, Father, we come before you now grateful, thankful for all that you have done. We have come to recognize that we do not bestow upon Jesus the name that is above every name, we have come to declare that you have done it. We crown him in our lives, for you have already crowned him. Help us to hold on to that which is ultimate, that which can never be moved, the inheritance that you've laid up for us. May we hail Jesus as the everlasting king, now and through all eternity. Strengthen us as we go now, by your spirit, to keep us faithful to you, to your word, to all of your commandments, not to earn our salvation, but out of an intense, zealous gratitude for your grace. pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Stand together.